Growing up, my family had a little ceramic nativity scene that sat on our coffee table every Christmas season. It was complete with baby Jesus and his family and the shepherds and the wise men and the angels and the stable. It had all this stuff, right? Everyone was in their expected place and everyone was playing their expected role. But over the years, a home with five children took its toll on that poor little nativity set. (laughs) After a while, some of the shepherd's staffs were held on by glue. Some of the wise men had some scratches and scuffs, and few people even went missing, sadly. But the breaking point was literally the breaking of Joseph's head off. (laughs) It was bad, and I may or may not have had something to do with that. I won't confess today. But that was the point too far. My mom, she took the nativity set. She said, I'm going to put this somewhere where it cannot be damaged anymore. You know, that little nativity set reminds me of one of the mistakes we often make when we think about the Christmas story. What we tend to do is we tend to over-glamorize the whole thing. We make things a little too neat and tidy. The whole scene in our heads is picture perfect. No one looks scared or tired or stressed out. Everyone is smiling and glowing with their little halo. And baby Jesus is totally peaceful and calm because newborns don't cry, right? That's kind of the the standard nativity scene we have in our minds and on our mantles. In fact, if I had to guess, I bet I could give you a nativity set this morning. You could tell me exactly where everyone's supposed to stand and what they're supposed to look like. But I've come to realize that the real Christmas story was much more like the broken ceramic one on my childhood coffee table. Think about it. Mary was recovering from a natural delivery outside with the animals. I don't have to give a science lesson, do I? Joseph was exhausted and afraid. Baby Jesus was being a baby. It was messy, it was chaotic, and even tragic. Yeah, there, were, there was certainly joy and excitement at the, at the birth of Christ. The shepherds rejoiced and the angels sang. And Mary and Joseph surely had that new glow that first-time parents have. But the birth of Jesus was not the way I would have drawn it up. And I'm willing to bet it wasn't the way Mary and Joseph would have drawn it up either. The whole nativity is surrounded by some events that if you or I were writing the story, I I think we probably would have left out. So we just tend to focus on the good parts, the happy parts. You know, the the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks in the fields by night and uh, baby wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger, which is why we often go to the Gospel of Luke. That's kind of the traditional Charlie Brown Christmas story. But the Gospel of Matthew as we've seen, gives us the same story but from a different angle, filling in some of the context of what was going on. And he shows us some of the difficulties, some of the the tragedy that accompanied the birth of Christ. And there is no part of this story more difficult and more tragic than what we see King Herod do in the passage we're going to look at today. Since today is the final Sunday of Advent, this is our last message in our Advent series, All Things New. And along the way, we've seen how God is redeeming all things 
for his good purposes through Jesus. We've seen that out of despair, God brings hope. Out of chaos, God brings peace. Out of sadness, God brings joy. And today our last message is this. Out of hatred, God brings love. So let's walk through this passage in Matthew 2, verse by verse together. And I want to invite you to look with me now at Matthew 2, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. The very first years of Jesus' young life, he's, he's already on the run from people who want to harm him. But as we've seen throughout this story, God's protecting him. He has an angel uh, direct Joseph, and Joseph takes his family and gets them together. And by night, they flee to another country across the border to Egypt. At this time, there would have been a sizable Jewish community living in Egypt for them to take refuge with. So there was some level of comfort there. But this still would have been really difficult. Think about it. Think about someone wanting to harm your baby. Then having to uproot your family and run for fear of your life from the government to a foreign country, a place you probably hadn't been before. This was just another challenge in the life of this young couple. And the reason they run, Matthew tells us, is because of Herod and his intention to harm Jesus. We talked about last week, we talked about Herod and established that Herod was appointed by the Roman Empire to rule over the Jews. He considered himself to be the king of the Jews, yet he didn't worship the God of the Jews. He was a really cruel man. And and we're going to see just how cruel he really was. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Once Herod realized that the wise men had tricked him, he took matters into his own hands. He he murders every male child in Bethlehem to and under At this time, we know Bethlehem was a small village, and historians believe, given its size, they estimate that somewhere between 6 and 20 boys would have lost their lives that day. Man, this is a horrific act of evil. We can just imagine what this, the impact this would have had on the whole community. I mean, think about living in a small town in Bethlehem like that. You would have known the families of these boys. You might have been related to them in some way. So why did Herod do this? Why did he want so badly to get rid of Jesus? Well, for starters, this was typical of the reign of Herod. We said last week he was known for being highly paranoid. Historians tell us that he had three of his own sons murdered, among other family members, in order to protect his throne. Herod was a wicked, 
evil man bent on keeping his power at any cost. And because of the visit from the wise men, he perceived Jesus as a threat. And think about it, if, if royal nations were coming to worship this baby instead of him, then this baby must be more powerful than Herod. Can't have that. But there's something deeper going on here that Matthew wants us to see. Matthew gives us a quote from the Old Testament to show us that what's happening here with Herod murdering these boys is a pattern that we see all throughout the Bible. From the very beginning, Satan has hated God and has used many different vehicles to assault and to attempt to destroy the people of God. Herod is just the the latest version of that attack. This began all the way back in Genesis when Satan tempted Adam and Eve to disobey. He he wanted to destroy them, so he, he convinced them to eat the fruit from the forbidden tree. And then when God shows up and curses Satan in Genesis 3.15, he reveals that even though Satan would one day be defeated, he would continue to strike the heel of mankind and war against God and his people. So God kind of sets up the story where the the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve are going to be having this lifelong battle throughout the scripture. And we see it. We see Satan attempt to murder and destroy the people of God. We see it as Cain kills his own brother, Abel. We see it as Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery and try to kill him. We see it as God's people become enslaved and are oppressed for 400 years in Egypt. We see it as Saul attempts to kill God's chosen king, David. We see it as Jezebel attempts to kill God's chosen prophet, Elijah. We see it as rival nations want to take out Israel. And then we see it ultimately as those nations take Israel into exile. And this time of exile is what Matthew is quoting when he says, Rachel is weeping for her children. What's that about? Well, this is a quote from from Jeremiah 31 where Jeremiah personifies Rachel from Genesis. Weeping as her children, who represent the people of Israel, are being drug off to Babylon as prisoners. And Matthew, what he's doing is he's connecting the exile to Herod's murder of the boys. He's telling us that just as the Babylonians sought to destroy God's people, so Herod is now attempting to do the same thing. He's just acting out Satan's hatred towards God and his people. We know this, this hatred continues until this day. The world we live in is systematically opposed to God. The Bible tells us that Satan is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. The Apostle Paul tells us that we don't war against flesh and blood, but we war against unseen powers of the evil one. Like There is a spiritual battle taking place around us. Even now, even in this place, as Satan attempts to keep us from hearing the word of God. There always will be this certain level of hatred toward Jesus and his people. This is why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Like Opposition is a normal part of the, the Christian life. That's why Jesus warned his disciples, hey, you're going to be mistreated, they're going to hate you, and they're going to kill you. Because he knew Satan opposed their mission. And Jesus himself experienced that hatred through his whole life. From the very beginning, he's running 
He's running away until finally, after some time, he's able to settle in the town called Nazareth. Check this out in verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. After Herod's death, the angel tells Joseph, hey, it's safe for you to bring your family back, but you're going to have to stay away from Jerusalem where the powers still want to harm Jesus. So they settle in this remote, insignificant town called Nazareth. But notice what Matthew tells us in verse 23. They didn't settle in Nazareth by accident, but it says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. This reminds us that everything that is happening in this crazy story is a part of God's sovereign plan. Being born in Bethlehem, having no place to stay, being laid in a manger, running for their lives, living in Egypt, coming back to Israel, settling out in Nazareth in obscurity. None of this was an accident or a surprise to God. Each and every step along the way actually fulfilled the predetermined plan of God. And this is another key theme we see throughout the whole Bible. As Satan hates God and his people and attempts to mess up his plans, God's love overcomes that hatred by fulfilling his plans exactly the way he drew them up. And here's the amazing part. Satan thinks he's messing things up. He thinks he's ruining God's plan for his people. But God totally flips things on Satan. He actually uses Satan's own attempts to destroy his plan as the very means to fulfill his plan. Let me say that another way. Because we have a God who is so sovereign and so perfect, he can take Satan's attacks and hatred and use them to accomplish his good plan. One of the best examples of this is, is Joseph in Genesis. Remember Joseph, we already said his brothers, they beat him up, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery, and through a series of events, he's taken up into power in Egypt, and his brothers end up having to come to him for food. And when his brothers come to him, the, notice what Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20. He says this, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. See, nothing can hinder the plans of God, not even the evil choices of man or the attacks of Satan. And this is what Matthew highlights in in the life of Jesus in verse 15. Look back again at verse 15. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, what's, what's this about? 
Well, Matthew's quoting Hosea 11, who was a prophet, where Hosea is making a reference back to the Exodus. <laughs> I know this is a lot of different parts coming together, but hang with me. It's going to make sense. Matthew is, is demonstrating what he's doing here. He's demonstrating how even something bad, like Jesus having to run from Herod to Egypt and almost die, is actually fulfilling God's plans of salvation. Jesus, as a baby, is acting out what God did in Exodus. And Matthew's making a comparison to those to help us understand what's going on. So let's think back. Think back to the story in Exodus. God's people, they, they settle in Egypt because of Joseph and the famine, and they start to grow and outnumber the Egyptians, and the Egyptians say, we can't have that. So they enslave the people. And then God raises up Moses to come in and do all the, the miracles and the plagues. And he brings the people out with this incredible display of power. And they walk right out through the Red Sea. You remember that? And what began as slavery ends in displaying God's salvation. What began with hatred ends in displaying God's love. And here's how this all connects together from the exodus to Herod attempting to kill Jesus to God bringing his son out of Egypt. Here's the point. God's love is displayed most greatly in his sovereign plan to save his people out of evil and hatred. And this plan, which we see all through Scripture, builds and builds and builds until it culminates at the cross 2,000 years ago. Because the hatred that started at the birth of Jesus continues all the way until they kill him. The powers of the world, they seek his life continually and eventually they arrest him, sentence him to death and crucify him. And what greater display of, of hatred could there be than the very people God created spitting on him, whipping him, nailing him to a cross. And the truth is that that was us. That was our sin that nailed him there. But here's the thing, even then, God's sovereign plan could not be stopped. The death of Jesus, it wasn't an accident, it wasn't a mistake, it wasn't some kind of thrown wrench in the situation. It was actually God's plan all along to save the world. Yes, the, the cross is a picture of the world's hatred and sin. But even more than that, it's a picture of God's love for his people. God used the hatred and evil of man, to die for the hatred and evil of man, to redeem the hatred and evil of man. This is incredible. You see, on the cross, God poured out his wrath and judgment on Jesus in our place. We deserved that judgment for our sin, but Jesus took it instead. And by taking our place, we're, we're forgiven, and now we can experience God's love in a relationship with him. At the cross, God literally brought love out of hatred. He brought life out of death. He brought victory out of defeat. This is what God does. And this is what Advent is all about. God is redeeming all things for his glory and our good. He is making all things new. And one of the ways we celebrate the love of the cross is by remembering it with a family meal of sorts. It's what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, and, and we're going to have the opportunity to do that here in just a moment together. 
But the Lord's Supper, it's a symbolic meal where, where the bread and the juice remind us of what Jesus did by dying on the cross in our place. There's nothing magic about the bread and the juice, even though we got like a new cooler version. Nothing magic. But they point us to the reality. They, they remind us of what Jesus did for us. And, and I love that we get to do this right before Christmas. Because I think one of the other mistakes that we make when we celebrate Christmas is that sometimes we stop at the manger. We celebrate the coming of the, the sweet baby Jesus, but we forget that he didn't come to just be a baby. He came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus didn't come to just lie in the hay. He came to lie lifeless in a tomb for three days and then walk out. And he didn't come to just sit on our mantles, but he came to rule over our hearts and over the universe as Savior and Lord. And Jesus came to die. That was his purpose. That is the reason he came. So without the cross, Christmas means nothing. Without the death of Jesus, there's nothing to celebrate. All the lights and music and food, that's great. But if we miss the cross, we're wasting our time. And we know people all over the world this week will celebrate Christmas without even knowing why it's, it's meant to be celebrated. Christmas is special because the baby that we celebrate came to rescue us through his death. Christmas is joyful because God loved us so much that he gave his only son for you. And Christmas is hopeful because Jesus is alive today and he's coming back again. Let's don't miss the rest of the story this Christmas. Don't stop in Matthew 2. But we of all people have got to keep this message central in our lives. We've got to keep the message of the gospel central in the way we celebrate Christmas got to remember, God loves us so much that he gave up his only son to die in our place. And the love of God has triumphed over the evil of the world. And now we get to display that love to a world who desperately needs it. So let's go to the Lord this morning. Let's thank him for that. And then let's celebrate it through the Lord's Supper. Let's pray.